Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. So the war in Ukraine has recently kind of fallen down people's priority lists, um, but the conflict escalated sharply on March 30th when four Ukrainian soldiers were killed in clashes with Russian-backed separatists in Donetsk. Reports then surfaced of increased Russian troop movement and new weaponry on the Ukrainian border. And the military buildup has sparked fears throughout the international community of dramatic escalation to the conflict. Um, and the US military's European command has raised its watch level from possible crisis to potential eminent crisis. Um, there have been myriad theories about what is driving Russian actions. Um, some analysts have emphasized dynamics in Russia-Ukraine relations with Russia looking to pressure Ukraine to implement Minsk and signal discontent over recent anti-Russian moves. Others have suggested that Putin is really just flexing his muscles to test the resolve of the Biden administration. Um, well, whereas others have also added into the mix some domestic factors like Putin's efforts to distract uh, from what's happening with Navalny and his, his tepid domestic support. So we are excited today to have two fantastic experts to help us wade through all of this. I want to welcome Maxine Samarukov and Mike Kaufman to the show. Welcome to you both. Hello. All right, just very quick backgrounds on both of them. Maxime is a fellow at the Carnegie Moscow Center and deputy editor of the center's website. Uh, before joining Carnegie in 2015, he also worked as an editor and international columnist covering topics including Russian foreign policy and the challenges of transitioning to democracy. And happy to welcome back to Brussels Sprouts, Mike Kaufman, who is a senior research scientist at the Center for Naval Analyses Russia Studies Program. And of course, one of our own as an adjunct senior fellow on our transatlantic security program. So again, welcome to you both. Um, let's see, maybe we can just start um, with a brief laydown. I know both of you have written excellent pieces on this topic, Mike, your piece in Moscow Times and Maxime, the piece that you put out on the Carnegie website. Um, but I wonder if we can just take a second and do a quick laydown of kind of events on the ground as they are. How would you both describe at this moment and recognizing that things can, can move quite quickly um, even before we put this episode out, um, but Mike, let's start with you and kind of how you would describe where events stand at the current moment. Sure. Uh, I would briefly summarize it as quite a while ago, it seemed very clear that uh, Russia and Ukraine had reached an impasse on any further negotiations regarding uh, implementation of Minsk ceasefire agreement, that the actual ceasefire had begun to break down and forcibly broke down some weeks ago and resulting in skirmishes and thus along the line of contact. And that uh, as this escalation was taking place, it became much more visible that there were very overt and unusual Russian troop movements that had been taking place and are still taking place as we speak of rather substantial deployment into Crimea that to be frank had actually not been seen on the size and scale before since the Russian annexation of Crimea and pretty sizable force movements in and around Ukrainian borders. And so the, the statements regarding that uh, these movements were exercises by the Southern Military District, for example, that came very late, long after a lot of this activity was observed, they unfortunately ended up being very unconvincing because not only did they not cover a lot of the activity that we're seeing or observing right now today, 
um, they, uh, they came very late into the movements being seen. And even the current Russian sort of uh, MOD releases don't seem to really explain what's going on. So that's, that's I think, roughly where we are. Um, I think that uh, a lot of folks looking at this are naturally wondering what Russian intentions are. And we're going to get into that here in this conversation. But I think that can, that's a very short summary from my end. Great. And Maxime, so then if we actually rewind a little bit, can you kind of describe as you see it, and maybe even as you described in your piece, kind of the state of Russia-Ukraine relations in the lead up to all of these events? Were there things that were happening and transpiring ahead of time that maybe um, have contributed um, to, what, to what we see today? Yeah, I'll try to. Yeah, there was a, a radical change in the Zelensky's policy towards Russia. Because initially, when he arrived at power two years ago, he was posing as a peacemaker. And his main pre-electoral promise was to bring peace to Donbass. And so there would seem to be a possibility for some rapprochement between Kiev and Moscow, because the contacts were re-established. Presidents started to contact each other. They hold a Normandy summit. They managed to impose a lasting ceasefire in Donbass. But a few months ago, the situation changed. Actually, Zelensky. Uh, facing many internal problems and facing the sharp fall in his popularity at home due to the pandemic, to economic problems, to concessions he had made on uh, Donbass to Russia. He is facing oppositions from many sides. And so he decided to take a more assertive stance in, in his relations to Russia. Over the scope of two months, he has uh, made several very high-profile anti-Russian decisions, imposing sanctions on some pro-Russian politicians, uh, closing down, down several pro-Russian media, uh, and uh, uh, making up new, uh, new uh, conditions for the continuation of the uh, negotiations on the Donbass. This uh, was not really welcomed in Moscow. Uh, Moscow perceived it as uh, an attempt of Zelensky to boost his domestic and international standing by playing anti-Russian card. And uh, the Kremlin never appreciated that, and uh, this time it was no exclusion. And Kremlin reacted with a massive military buildup along the Ukrainian borders and in Crimea uh, to make Zelensky really nervous. And in terms of some of the other kind of anti-Russian cards that um, that the Ukrainians have played, my understanding is also that they had implemented sanctions, for example, on Medvedchuk. Was yes. what else? Are there some like other kind of things that Russia, the Kremlin, may be looking at um, that kind of reinforces this perception of a more anti-Russian turn from Zelensky? Uh, the whole rhetoric of Kiev has radically changed and has become far more assertive and anti-Russian, we can call it. Because Zelensky has also presented a new Crimean platform, which is supposed to keep the Crimea issue in the international agenda and attract attention of the world powers to the fate of this peninsula. Uh, Zelensky also presented a new military strategy of Ukraine, which aims at bringing Ukraine closer to NATO, even joining NATO, which is a red flag for Russia. And there were several steps, you know, Zelensky had created a center for fighting Russian disinformation, you know, and all these steps were taken within a very short period of time. Just in a few months, we saw a very radical twist in Zelensky's policy towards Russia and, and in rhetoric especially. 
Okay, so maybe we can kind of make this is good. It's good fodder for trying to kind of assess and gauge some of what Moscow's intentions may be in this conflict. So obviously, one theory that people have talked about is this more anti-Russian turn in Moscow. Mike, you also talked about efforts to pressure uh, Ukraine and Kiev over implementation of the Minsk agreements. Do you want to say a little bit about kind of what you mean um, and, and what Russia's uh, intention or motivation would be behind using military force towards that objective? Well, this is somewhat a conundrum if I'd like to jump in uh, off of what Maxim was saying. The, the challenge, at least from my perspective, first of all, is that um, while Ukraine's and Zelensky's policy and tone of rhetoric had changed considerably, there were really no signs of a Ukrainian military operation that was in the making to either retake the Donbass or uh, uh, attack Crimea, which to be frank, given Ukrainian military capabilities is not absurd, but it's pretty far outside of the realm uh, what is going to be likely as a successful military operation. So what was going on, at least what we could observe, Andre, is a bit strange since you essentially have Russian military counter moves to sort of bolster, allegedly from their point of view, immediate deterrence against a series of military operations and force buildups that weren't happening on the Ukrainian side, realistically. Okay. The second problem is that over the recent years, Russia really built up and deployed several very large permanent uh, military formations, divisions, brigades that had been moved to the Ukrainian border, specifically for this contingency. That is, there are there's a very large number of permanently based Russian military units around Ukraine in the event that Ukraine would ever consider launching a military operation to retake the Donbass. And it's very clear to Ukraine that it's essentially surrounded by Russian divisions and brigades of various types. And that any attack would lead to a much larger scale war that Ukraine is bound to lose, right? And, and, and this deterrent is in no way gotten weaker. It's only gotten stronger as Russians have been filling out these divisions with actual units. This has grown in strength every year, year on year. So it, it, it of course, begs the question of why does Russia suddenly feel like it needs to deter Zelensky um, with a military deployment and other units, even though it already has deployed a very large number of units around Ukraine to deter Ukraine and Zelensky. This is, this is mystery number one. Um, so to me, this, this increasingly began to look like a fairly specific course of deployment outside of regular exercises, outside of troop rotations. By the way, we're not seeing substantial Russian troop rotations in the actual Donbass itself, which is also very weird. For people who claim that Ukrainians may launch an operation at this point because the escalation is sort of may lead Ukrainians to believe that they have military options, they're not really inserting any substantial number of forces into the Donbass either, right? We're not seeing a lot of Russian troops going in to the separatist controlled regions either. And this is pretty interesting. Um, and, and so it, it, felt, it felt a lot less like really a deterrence display. If it was, perhaps it's tremendous overkill on the Russian part and much more as a coercive play. Of course, I always said the problem and, and you asked the right question. All right, this is coercive diplomacy, but it's coercing Ukraine towards what goal? My view is probably twofold. First, to convince Zelensky that the policy is chosen as a disastrous policy and won't work. The second one is to impress upon uh, Zelensky's partners and interlocutors in the West, those Europeans who are beginning to essentially take uh, Ukraine's position on interpretation of the Minsk ceasefire agreement, that this is the wrong way forward, that the conflict's unsettled. They're not going to be able to essentially just back Ukraine and have this whole thing freeze, and that they're ultimately going to have to make political compromises vis-a-vis -vis Russia. To me, this is probably the most logical purpose of this, de of this deployment, which is very overt, 
Um, it is uh, disconcerting, not just to Ukrainians, but to everybody else watching, as, as uh, you, you rightly laid out in the introduction. And if it is a signal, some have suggested to show Ukraine that in the event of a conflict, you know, the entire state of Ukraine would be at risk. It, let's be frank, it's pretty silly. Everybody in Ukraine knows that. Ukraine is surrounded by Russian military units as is. Um, and actually what, what they're deploying in Crimea raises big question marks. Nobody on the other side of this transaction in terms of the military escalation, if that makes sense, right? If we look across the isthmus from Crimea, there are no Ukrainian forces massing there to be deterred in operation. And my, my last point here would be, Maxim's absolutely right in what you said about the change in Ukraine's policy. The one thing I would say probably to me is not very different is Ukraine has had, as a matter of fact, in its policy, the desire to join NATO for all these years since the Maidan. I mean, this sort of strategic uh, vector in Ukrainian policy is not new. Uh, and, and I think everybody in Russia knows that, um, that Ukraine's chances of joining NATO in the near term aren't very good. <laughs> probably in the medium term, they're not that good either. And I don't know if they're great in the long term beyond the medium term, which would be able to put it politely. So it's not like there's some strength. It's not like Ukraine is going to get into NATO now that because Zelensky has woken up and decided that Ukraine should join NATO. You know, the counterparty to that transaction, uh, I don't think, is all that willing. Well, these uh, these um, interventions have been very, very good, very, very welcome. And I, what I want to do, uh, looking at this from a Washington perspective, is first to take off the table as an intent the idea that Putin is doing this to test the new administration. I mean, that's International Relations 101. You know, I guess ever since the Kennedy administration, you know, the, the press particularly, but everyone, they assign a testing label to anything that the Russians might do in the first hundred days or anybody, any other country might do. It's all, oh, well, they're testing the new administration. Well, that's not what's going on here, to my mind. I mean, I think Putin is going to, might be interested as a, as a side uh you know, a side deals, how the Americans are going to react to this, how Biden's going to react to this, what will they say? He might be interested in that, but that's not what's motivating him. I think what you all laid out is exactly right. Uh, and this is something that um, that is where we really have to have to dig, dig down. So uh, in terms of intent, as far as I'm concerned, it's not to test the, the new Biden administration. They're, they, they have to deal with this. So they, so they are being t they are in the middle of their own test, but this isn't a Putin test to them. This is Putin taking care of business in his neck of the woods. And uh, the Biden administration is trying to figure it out. I, I think that, uh, Maxime, I want to kind of put that question to you, building off what Jim is saying. So, I mean, I think when we're looking at Russian actions, it's obviously never kind of a single driver. I always feel like it's a convergence of factors that work together. So would you say that there is any element of this that is intended as signaling towards the United States and Europe? I mean, one thing that we have also heard, and I think that I would partly subscribe to, um, is that, you know, from Russia's perspective, they see in Washington a laser-like focus on China. Um, and that, you know, Putin, the Kremlin, doesn't want to be an afterthought. He doesn't want to be underestimated. Um, and so do you think that there is any element to this to say, hey, guys, you know, not so fast. You can't look past us and we expect and we want to remind you um, that we are a great power with great capabilities and that we can't be overlooked. So I agree. First and foremost, it's probably it is about you, uh, Russia, Ukraine relations. But do you think that there is any element to that that would that would 
you know, help explain some of the timing? I think that's very funny that Kremlin is signaling something to the West, but nobody in the West is able to understand what actually it's signaling. <laughs> that's, that tells a lot. Uh, but okay, I, I think that the Ukrainian agenda is dominating here because I think the main concern of the Kremlin is to prevent, uh, to get away any, to get away any thoughts in Kiev about changing the status quo in Donbass, in Donbass militarily. The main concern is, to, is the deterrence. Because uh, I think the Kremlin is uh, um, quite mobilized after the arrival of Biden to the White House, that uh, Kremlin expects Biden to boost uh, the containment of Russia all over the globe, and especially in the post-Soviet space, and uh, that the Kremlin is afraid that with Biden's support, with Biden's like um, uh, positive statements in support of Ukraine, they may give uh, the Ukrainian leadership an impression they, that they may count on some more substantial assistance of the West. Like it happened uh, several years ago in Georgia, uh, with uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, yeah, when uh, Russian-Georgian war started. And Russia, Russia wants to avoid a similar development when like Ukraine starts some offensive in Donbass trying to change the state, to change uh, the, to improve the line of contact or to force some concessions on the part of the Donbass republics. And then the big war is provoked because Russia has to intervene to, to help them out. And so, this is the main concern, just prevent Kyiv being too enchanted by the support words of Biden's administration. Mike, do you want to weigh in on that one? Oh, sure, absolutely. So I agree. I think first things are multi-causal, although I also expect that, that really the Russia-Ukraine agenda is what's dominating here. And we do tend to be often very Western-centric in Washington. We think it's all about us. Oh, and if we make a phone call and show political resolve that this is totally going to deter people over their vital interests too. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, at the end of the day, that it's not a question of Russia probing us. And then if the United States doesn't quite respond right, then they're going to invade, whereas before they weren't going to invade. No, leaders use force, okay, because they believe that force is necessary to achieve political objectives. It means they have political objectives in mind, not just sort of uh, gaming, probing with the uh, United States. Um, so I think that one issue we have is going back and forth with Maxim here is that always, our logic may be sound, but perceptions are king. And so Russians may be living in a bit of their own information bubble regarding Ukrainian intentions and believing that the Biden administration has shown up and is going to give Ukraine some green light. Uh, I personally believe that the opposite will take place, that the Biden administration is not the Bush administration. It's far more responsible in a lot of ways. And actually, Bush administration is a big misnomer, too, because Bush administration in, in, in private meetings was very much urging restraint upon Saakashvili, too. So I think it gets in some ways a bad rap uh, in, in parts of that history. That said, I do think that the, the deterrence um, display, of course, in military power is, of course, a, a logical and fair, but also very optimistic interpretation. So we have to weigh all the other ones as well. Uh, I'd say that Russia is definitely bringing more forces than one would expect for a display that's simply for deterrence purposes, and that they're bringing them from all different parts of Russia, which looks very strange, and they're not explaining why they're engaged in these force movements. And they're issuing statements regarding exercises that equally don't make sense regarding the forces that they are moving, right? 
Um, that said, it's probably worth discussing whether or not it makes any sense for Russia to use military power right now to achieve any political objectives in Ukraine. I'm pretty skeptical on that as well. Looking at these scenarios, some of the historical ones that have been debated in recent years and, and sort of past war scares, most of them don't make sense either, right? So we should, we should say that on balance as well. Okay, so let's just round out this discussion of some of the intentions. So we talked about, obviously, factors that are endogenous to the Russia-Ukraine relationship. We talked about how much of this is about the Biden administration, some signaling to the West. Then the final kind of basket of factors that are out there are also domestic considerations inside Russia. Um, so currently, Navalny is in prison. He's in very poor health. The Russian government is withholding treatment. So there's the whole, and 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 that has been a pretty um, a, a strong focus of the United States and Europe, obviously with Navalny. So you know, with his mistreatment in prison, that that's happening. We have fairly tepid kind of public support for Putin. Further off, um, but elections coming up in the fall. Um, I know, you know, I have not historically been a strong proponent of the domestic drivers of Russian foreign policy, but I wonder if there is, again, kind of thinking about timing or whether or not, Maxime, you think this at least creates conditions that would, you know, that allow Putin to feel he could take more risk in his foreign policy. Do you think that has anything to do here or would you totally dismiss that those domestic links? I'm skeptical about domestic explanation because I am afraid that the, the impact of Navalny's return to Russia is exaggerated in the West because of wide coverage, because we don't see any protests. Uh, the, there are discussions in Facebook, but it is not a big issue any longer in, inside Russia. And it's hardly a threat to the stability of the uh, Russian regime or to the unity of the ruling elite. Yeah, it's, it's, at the moment, at least, it's not a threat at all. The Russian ruling elite has demonstrated unprecedented unity responding to, to Navalny's return, uh, refuting basically his expectations, probably. Uh, the autumn elections, is that the parliamentary elections? And Russian society does not really appreciate parliamentary elections. It's not a big issue. I think that it will be a non-event because over the past years, uh, the Russian presidential administration has experimented a lot with elections. They have made a lot of innovations in the electoral laws. And now you, in Russia, you can organize the voting process. You can prolong, prolong it for several days. You can complicate the life of observers. You can mobilize just the people who are dependent on the state and get the result you want without any, any problems with uh, patients flying high and mobilizing the wide layers of population, of society. Yeah, because the Kremlin has already learned that once mobilized, it's very difficult to, con to channel the, this mobilization in the direction you want it to go. Yeah, it's, it's better to have everything calm and low, pro low profile, and there is no need, actually there are no direct challenges to the Kremlin's victory in uh, uh, this autumn. And I don't think why it would uh, require a war to win uh, just a parliamentary election. Mike, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, I just briefly say that uh, I agree with Maxime. I think actually the regime is relatively confident domestically, and there's a lot of wishful thinking here in the West and this narrative of, of sort of the late Putinism uh, uh, and sort of self-spun story of what, what feels like rapid deterioration that really isn't. 
The second point I make is that it looks very clear that post-2018, the Russian public is really not interested in foreign policy adventurism, and there aren't a lot of domestic political gains to be made from foreign policy activity. And that was a big shift. To me, probably that was a big shift after uh, particularly the, the reform of pension laws. But this is like uh, in retirement age. You could really see the shift in Russian domestic attitudes, much more interested in public admin governance issues and the like at home and domestic policy, not foreign policy. And the regime does constant pollings on these issues. We know that the regime pays very close attention to what the public actually thinks and does a lot of internal pollings on these subjects. And the last one is domestic politics always influences foreign policy. We can't say that it doesn't, but I find that the sort of the sort of more base or simplistic um, uh, domestic politics as cause of foreign policy are often not explanative and they very much tend to be not predictive, right? For all the cases where I would ask people to show me bad approval ratings or some internal crisis in Russia and say, okay, okay, now show me Russia invading somebody. You're gonna find you're gonna find it doesn't it doesn't explain this. It this doesn't happen, right? So it often not to be too dismissive of it, but it can often be it can tell it it can tell the right time of day the way a broken clock tells the right time of day twice a day. You know, so that's the challenge you can get. Um, uh, with, we're just sort of focusing narrowly on the domestic politics uh, input into foreign policy. Yeah. Okay. So we've kind of walked through some of these uh, different potential um, explanations for Russian intentions. And I want to talk a little bit now about possible scenarios of where this could potentially go. Um, and Mike, I know you kind of in your Moscow Times piece kind of had warned against thinking that the military mobilization signaled impending um, significant escalation there, but that you have moved at least a little bit. Um, so in your mind, kind of where, where are you thinking things are heading? Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm hedging back a bit. And the reason why is that I would say last week I was quite confident that this was a coercive display, primarily for intimidation or deterrence purposes, maybe as Maxime had said. Coercion is an operative mechanism in deterrence, so the cash actually oftentimes can be one and the same. But um, the, the truth is that a lot of the military movements that you see seem excessive and pretty odd if that's the sole purpose. And so a lot, a lot of question marks uh, have, have now appeared. I'm, less, I'm a bit less certain on it. Um, although still largely staying with the initial assessment. Reason why is that if we kind of look at perspective uh, utility of force in achieving political objectives for Russia, there isn't a great story to be told there, right? First of all, in the Donbass, there's the peacekeeper thesis. This is pretty nonsensical, okay? First of all, Russian forces are in the Donbass and can move in and out of it freely. Second, the entire objective of Russian foreign policy has been not to be the official party to the war in Ukraine and not to be officially there actually controlling and owning the territory. So why would Russia resolve all the foreign policy tasks of the Ukrainian government by introducing its own forces as formal official peacekeepers in the Donbass. This doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't understand what Russia wins in doing this, all right? This is issue one. Issue two, we have the long enduring nonsensical thesis of the land bridge to Crimea, which is completely pointless, doesn't resolve anything for Russia, creates tremendous problems, and no, there aren't the forces to maintain a, a 300 kilometer long corridor all the way from Mariupol to Crimea. It actually solves nothing for Russia. And that it's it, within the realms of, of military operations, if that was something Russia was going to do, they might as well seize half of Ukraine. Because if you're going to go 300 kilometers into a country at that point, and you feel you have the force structure to affect that operation, they're likely, then, then it's a whole different calculus. Then we have our last uh, our last scenario, which is the, the water shortage in John Crimea. Well, that's been a long running issue. I've been writing blogs on this since 2017, 2018. People have come up with this pretty, pretty regular. Actually, every year, in fact, this gets raised in the spring. 
as a possible Russian invasion scenario. Now, this here is a bit different. I want to highlight this for people. Previously, whenever the threat of Russian invasion was raised, it was typically first and foremost raised by Ukrainians and Ukrainian political leadership, often for all sorts of reasons, but the Russian troop movements were not there to match the story. That is, you could not see Russian military activity justifying the discourse of elevated threat or the likelihood of invasion. This year, we have a problem. The conversation on the likelihood of escalation did not emanate or originate from the Ukrainian side. It started from the Russian side. And it's the Russians that are actually hyping the threat of escalation and potential use of force by the Ukrainian military. Second, we see all the troop movements and we have an unprecedented Russian military deployment into Crimea, which was not, not present before during these previous scares. So that's where a lot of the good questions actually should be, should be coming from why, why we're asking and why we're having this discussion. Uh, that being said, just to uh, conclude on this point, I, don't, I still don't see the forces there that would affect some large operation to seize Kherson Oblast. People have to understand that this would involve a pretty substantial force structure, one. The second part is these things look pretty easy to people on a map with crowns just to take a region of a country. The reality is that if you seize another part of a country, you've resolved one dilemma by now creating for yourself a whole host of new problems and dilemmas. You cannot cleanly cut off parts of other countries, okay? Quickly, you find out that this entire region depends on electricity from other parts of Ukraine, depends on food and other things from other parts of Ukraine as well. Before you know it, you quickly discover that actually you've taken this region, but now this region is not sustainable because it also depends on other parts of the country. As Russians have found out several times in Ukraine itself, in Lugansk and in Crimea, so people, I think, there understand this problem very well, right? So you cannot, if you, if you just attempt to resolve the water crisis in Crimea with overuse of force, you will then earn yourself a tremendous amount of new problems to resolve as well, and all the costs that come from that. So to me, it's possible. It's much more possible right now than it ever was back during uh, 2018 or other years when this was raised as a scare, but it is still pretty unlikely. All right, Maxime, what's your take so far? And then I want to come back to a couple of things. We obviously had the Putin Shoigu meeting. I don't, was it last week? Um, and then I want, also want to get into this idea about um, how Russia could be waiting for a Ukraine, you know, quote unquote, provocation as justification then to escalate. That seems to be another theory that, that people are talking about. But, but Maxime, maybe kind of just talking, uh, if you can just lay out um, kind of where you see events headed? I think Mike has brilliantly refuted the false stereotypes about land bridge and all this all this stuff, so I, I won't repeat that. But I think that my overall, overall impression is that we have seen Russia go into war quite a few times over the past decade and a half. And it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like the current situation. When Russia decides to go to war, it goes to war. It doesn't waste weeks in uh, contemplating, making statements, discussions, uh, and all this stuff. Yeah, it's just if the decision is taken, it is implemented immediately. Uh, in case of Georgian war, in case of uh, the uh, Ukraine, war in Ukraine in 2014, in, uh, in Syria in 2015, within hours from the start of the military action, nobody expected that. Yeah, everybody was taken by surprise. This time, we, this time, we've already spent a week discussing what is Russia after, what it is going to do, maybe it is going to organize a war. I don't see any rational reasons for Russia to start a war now. 
but to uh, I but I can't exclude that Russia is ready to overreact to to attempt of offense on Ukrainian side. If Ukraines provide some pretext for overreaction for Russia, it might seize this opportunity and uh, and uh, act militarily very aggressively and all this stuff. Yeah, but uh, just starting a war, there are, there are no rational reasons what Russia could could gain by such a move. I don't see that. Mike, do you want to weigh on that in on that pretext piece? I mean, to me, that that's one maybe that feels the most likely that if they're waiting for some sort of pretext, I don't know which maybe which could include an overreaction from the United States or NATO. So maybe we can get to in a minute how the United States and Europe should be thinking about responding. But how much stock do you put into that idea that that the Russians could be looking for some pretext that would allow them to take um, to escalate the situation? I think it's possible they're looking to bait Ukrainians, but if they were doing it, they'd be doing it in the Donbass. And if they're going to bait Ukrainians, they would not be baiting Ukrainians in order to conduct offensive operations. It's very clear that Russia does not want to own any more of sort of the rest of the Donbass in, the, in this part of Ukraine. If anything, it would be a coercive use of force to essentially show once again, Ukraine, that military options, not a solution, so on and so forth. But I see Ukraine showing tremendous restraint. I just don't see this happening. I don't think it's going to work. And I think everyone's been advising them much the same. Uh, most of the actions on the side you see coming from the Ukrainian military, and Zelensky himself showed them demonstrate considerable restraint, but this isn't going to happen. On, um, on, on sort of would we see Russia attack now versus later, I'd probably split hairs a little bit with Maxim and say, just because nothing's not happening now doesn't mean it won't happen a bit later because Russians are building up forces, right? So you don't know what the final end force structure will be. And there, there's ways to plan for operation deployment slow. There's other ways to do it quickly. So if I give you a good example in 2014, Russia deployed a fairly sizable amount of forces in two uh, joint combat groupings on Ukraine's borders, and they did not intervene, okay, in March and in April, if you remember, and in May. Okay. And in June and July, and then they intervened in August with several battalion tactical groups from August to September. And actually, I think Ukrainians were very much convinced by May the Russian military would not intervene, and they were, they were proving wrong in that assumption. But the point being is that the conflict can evolve in different ways. I don't think it's going to happen, as I've written publicly, it's not 2014. Um, the last bit is on analysts splitting hairs, rational versus reasonable. I've always believed that Russia like the uh, United States is rational. Rational means that people have a, an alignment, the thesis of how their ends align to their, their means align to their designed ends, the objectives that they seek and how the means align to them. The question is to what extent does Russian leadership on the issue of Ukraine reasonable as opposed to rational and how they align their capabilities against their objectives. That sometimes varies as you can see because human beings are emotional. As I like to say, Countries are not people, but they are run by people. They are not run by an AI program. People are emotional. They live in a bounded rationality with limited information on time pressure to make decisions. And yes, they can react in ways, for example, one could argue that the Russian reaction in 2014 to the Maidan was not a reasonable reaction. I think that could, oh, you could actually sustain that argument pretty well. You could say it was rational, but it was not reasonable, okay? 
I want to, in a minute, just what we can maybe wrap up on kind of responses from the U.S. and the West, but Maxime, can you talk a little bit about how this is all being covered inside Russia? I mean, to what extent is this being covered by the news? What are the narratives surrounding this? Kind of what, what, what are, what is the narrative surrounding the, the buildup and how do you think Russians are re responding, receiving and reacting to it? Uh, the narrative is not like really different from uh, what it used to be in the past years, that we need to protect Donbass from Western aggression. Yeah, it's, it's basically Western aggression, which the West is using, the United States, even not just the West, the United States are using uh, their puppets in uh, Kiev uh, to uh, undermine Russia as through Donbass. That's basically the narrative, and there are no big changes uh, in, in this respect. It's just probably it has become more intensive in the over the recent days because the, it's uh, in the news, everybody's watching it, and there are some attempts to mobilize people around that. But again, as Mike has said, I think Russian society has grown far less lukewarm about foreign policy adventures, and there is no popular demand to, to go on crusade to protect Donbass, that's for sure. Okay, so maybe we can shift a little bit then in terms of like what a, what a appropriate responses look like from the United States and Europe. Um, we saw some statements coming out from Europe, you know, uh, uh, encouraging de-escalation from both sides. Um, the Biden administration responded with a slew of phone calls at various levels. Um, Mike, do you think that's the appropriate type of response? Um, you know. It, it, I mean, we've covered this a little bit when we were talking about Russian actions, that if this isn't really like a test of resolve, then does that suggest a certain um, line of reaction as opposed to kind of more visible signs of, of displaying force and interest from the United States and NATO? Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. It's actually a better question for Jim Townsend. You know, he, he was much, much more experienced in, in OSD policy and in this than I am. I'm just, uh, I will, I will play the, the lowly uh, uh, military analyst card. But um, so I think for, for the United States, the challenge is uh, striking the Goldilocks zone between uh, making clear that we do have an interest and a commitment to Ukraine and that if, if there are offensive operations that that Russia choose to conduct, that there will be real costs and consequence from Russia on the one hand. On the other hand, I think the challenge for the United States is clearly, look, Ukraine is not a treaty ally of the United States and not to make excessive claims or stakes to Ukraine either as though Ukraine was a NATO member, right? To how you, how you walk that line um, and be both firm, but, but also, leave yourself the, the maneuver space as well. So you're not putting your credibility on the line where it might generally be tested and challenged. And there will be a political defeat for the United States, like the way Georgia played out too. So you wanna be cautious about the stakes you actually make as well. So I think there's um, one room for uh, some military signaling and statements of commitment. I don't know what to make of the European statements, different Europeans who made different statements that the sort of very soft European uh, uh, declaration that both sides should de-escalate. First of all, there's not a lot of escalation taking place. Second, it's not on both sides, all right? But like you don't see, you see very few Ukrainian force movements to the actual uh, line of contacts. It's not like the Ukrainian military is mobilizing and there's all these deployments on the Ukrainian side and both parties are preparing to go to war. You're just not seeing this in practice, right? So it's not clear 
it's actually not that clear. What does the Ukrainians have to de-escalate, right? Um, you're also not seeing Russian troops rushing into Donbass either. So that's a bit, big, big question mark there. Um, yeah, I, the way the way I look at it is probably in terms of policy, most people right now are in wait and see. The United States is conducting a lot of ISR, surveillance reconnaissance flights from the looks of it. Uh, there's uh, a lot of hesitation and, um, and it's not clear what Russian intentions are, right? So what's happening is because Russians are not being forthcoming on their intentions and there's no trust giving pattern and history of behavior, uh, people have to lean towards worst case scenario based on capability. And when they look at the capability as I described, it, it leads to considerable alarm. So a lot of question marks being asked. I'll punt the rest of us to Jim. I think he's better at this than I am. <laughs> well, Mike, thank you very much for that punt. That's, uh, but I, I think it's a, it's a punt that um, isn't necessarily deserved. But, but it's interesting you say that because, you know, in thinking about being in the administration right now and and trying to figure out, so what do we do? You know, I said this really wasn't a test for the Biden administration. Putin wasn't doing some, you know, policy one hundred and one, you know, testing the new administration. But within the administration, with the new team, certainly this is a stress test for them uh, themselves, trying to figure out, okay, how well are we going to do handling this crisis? And this is incredibly complex for the Biden administration, because right now, as you know, the JCPOA group is meeting and Russia's part of that, you know, and so we need to be working with Russia uh, on, on Iran and JCPOA. We've also got um, Afghanistan going on, and part of the administration's approach on Afghanistan was meeting with the regional nations to try to help us get out of there, and Russia's part of that too. We've also extended the new start. That's very important to the administration. So the administration is finding that uh, while, yes, we're very close to uh, Ukraine, and Ukraine's very important to us, and we've made these calls and made them public uh, and, and saying some very strong things on the one hand, on the other hand, um, we um, we are in the middle of a complex situation where we need to work with Russia on some things important to us, but we're still dealing with solar winds and that type of thing too. So, so this is something where there, there's not a there's not a lot of there's not a lot of uh, easy solutions out there uh, uh, for for the U.S. Uh, in in terms of dealing with this. Another thing too is we've used a lot of sanctions already on Russia. <laughs> I'm not sure what else is left in the quiver. In terms of sanctions that uh, that uh, that the Russians would not be able to just kind of brush away and say, well, okay, you're going to sanction this and this. That's fine. We can work around that. You know, so there's not a lot of good uh, options in terms of what the administration might have to do if the Russians went into uh, into the Donbas for some reason or, or or did something where we felt we needed to respond. We're going to do it with sanctions. There's just not a whole lot there. Uh, you know, I uh, I think, though, we're going to have to work with allies. The Biden administration has made that a hallmark. And I think within the alliance, um, there hasn't been a lot out there. But my guess is the alliance is split on this. If you talk to the Central and East Europeans, you talk to the Poles of the Balts, they're ready to go, you know, in a lot of ways. Uh, you talk to the Germans and, and maybe some of the other uh, allies, and it's a bit more nuanced. Uh, and so this idea of Ukraine, you know, came to NATO, I think, a couple of days ago and said, we'd love for NATO to have an exercise in Ukraine. I can understand why the Ukrainians would want that. But I can tell you within NATO, there, I, there would not get consensus on that. Um, uh, and, and finally, uh, you know, if we're going to ramp up our rhetoric and to the point of where 
and uh, in addition to raising the alert level at UConn, they actually begin to posture forces as if we're going to fight. You know, if we do that kind of signaling, a uh, very hard signaling, uh, more than ISR, uh, then we have then we are also saying that we're going to be willing to fight. Uh, and uh, and so you know, I, is this something that the Biden administration might find itself? you know, backing into something that they don't want to do. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a limit to what they're going to do. Last thing is this, you know, open skies. We talk about open skies and all that. This is an example of open skies where it would be helpful. Uh, you know, um, the type of uh, ISR it provides if there's cloud cover and over a crisis area, et cetera. This is, this is just an example of where open skies actually plays a role. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. Maybe, and Mike, I'll kick this question to you because I know you wanted to weigh in a little bit. But Jim, you, you, I mean, I think Mike, you were like, I mean, the, the conundrum is the Goldilocks problem, right? Of trying to find and thread the needle of what doesn't look like an incredibly weak response versus overreacting. I mean, and, and I agree, it's like that it's not a test that the intent of this is not a test of the Biden administration, but there is still important information that the Kremlin will learn from the way that the Biden administration responds. Is this just a redux from the Obama administration? It's the same team. I mean, I think Putin is, is incredibly calculating and understands asymmetry of interest. And so the response will convey, um, I think, what the United States is, you know, where, where, the, where they stand um, on this issue. And could, could I jump in real quick on that, Mike, just to, just to say on that point, that is a legacy that this new team is bringing in, which is they were part of the red line Obama team, too. Uh, and so when they came in with Biden, there were a lot of the embassies called me, a lot of uh, attaches and political counselors came in and said, are we seeing now this is the same group? They're going to come in. They're going to do a reset with Russia. They're going to be these folks that talk about red lines and never back it up. Is this what we're seeing? And I was saying, no, you're seeing a group that was burned by all of that. They're coming in not as naive and innocent as they were um, looking for the unicorns and rainbows of the Obama administration foreign policy. They're a bit harder edged uh, on this, but, but, but that only goes so far because they're still caught in this very complex situation um, and trying to signal in a way that uh, you know, shows that they're not the old team, but doesn't overreact and find themselves doing things militarily that they'll want to do. Mike. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. These are really great comments. Um, got very brief for me first. I think that language for the United States is that we are the king of ineffectual signaling with bombers, carriers, and other things. Okay. And this is not going to seriously deter coerce people over, over critical interests like Ukraine. Second, we're the king of mixed signaling. UCOM said it raised its watch to a very probable imminent crisis. And then the carrier strike group Ike, which was in UCOM's AOR, sailed south of the Suez Canal and left. And goodbye. So uh, so I guess the Global Hawk is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of deterrence and signaling by itself over Ukraine, you know, along with the RC-130 and, and, and other intelligence planes. Third, and this part is really important, why is the challenge of for us of illustrating commitments and interests at stake, but also understanding something very critical. If there is a war in any of these operations, they're going to be very sharp and this conflict is going to be short. In Ukraine, most of the phase of offensive operations were only a matter, the decisive phase, a matter of weeks, okay, if not less. And NATO is not going to have time to substantively necessarily intervene in any meaningful way or contribute or even get there, right? So making big stakes 
on the fact that you're actually going to do something when there's a strong chance when looking at a scenario, you're not going to have either the political will or the physical means to get there with anything meaningful in time. It's really important not to ruin your credibility because it does, it can, some people do believe in interdependence of credibility issues that when you fail on certain tests, it impinges on how you're seen by other parties regarding your other commitments. But Mike is absolutely right. I, I just want to really foot stomp that and particularly talking about NATO. You know, if if conflict were to break out here, uh, and I don't think necessarily anyone is looking for conflict, but if we back into something, we have a problem. NATO's not going to play. Number one, Ukraine's not a NATO member, as Mike Mike said. So there's not an automaticity there. You know, as a partner as a partner in the partnership for peace, Ukraine can come to NATO and say, "Help your partner." But I tell you, they will not get um, consensus at NATO on something other than, you know, maybe some training or, you know, you're not going to see NATO forces going over there. It's not going to happen. If, if there's a feeling that force needs to be uh, somehow used, I could, I, I, I don't, you know, you could see maybe a coalition of the willing of, a, of, of maybe what, the U.S. plus, I don't know, the polls, but, but you would not see something where we would be, this coalition would be going in and fighting Russians. I think that what we would do is reinforce the Baltics. We'd reinforce Poland. We'd do something like that. We wouldn't go in into, into contact with the Russians. That's just, just that's not going to happen. So, so just not a NATO thing. NATO is not going to be going in there. And if the U.S. felt it needed to do something that looks military, um, we would do it in a coalition, and it would involve the allied countries reinforcing them. Uh, it wouldn't be sending uh, U.S. forces uh, over into. Uh, uh, into into Ukraine. And I tell you what, if we said, well, we're going to fly a B-52 over Ukraine, well, then you're really, you're, you're setting up the expectation that you're willing to fight and using a strategic weapon. Uh, that's B-52. I mean, are you really, is that so, so really when it, if, if we get into a stage where, you know, this conflict becomes a little more real and tactile, it won't be NATO. It'll be it'll be uh, you know reinforcing the allies, and maybe NATO would do that kind of thing. But it won't be something sending forces, uh, Western forces, into the Donbas. That's just not going to happen. Okay, maybe final question for Maxime. So I, Putin understands all of this, right? He understands it's not a conflict with NATO, and there are you know very significant limitations on what the West is willing to do. Um, so what do you think his ultimate goals are in Ukraine? Just to go back to this question, longstanding question, but kind of sitting here today, where do you think Putin hopes um, that all of this is going with Ukraine? Oh, reading Putin's brain is not a very, um, it's not my favorite occupation. But, you know, uh, I think uh, he's thinking in long term. It's a long term because Russia is near Ukraine and the United States are far away from Ukraine. And so Putin understands that quite well, I believe. And he believes that uh, actually sooner or later, the West uh, will get tired of the Ukrainian internal chaos and forget about it. And Russia will, be, ha will have far freer hands intact in this issue. I think this is a long-term goal. 
All right, we are at time. Um, this has been a really fantastic discussion. Again, as, as I say, with almost all of our Brussels sprouts issues, an issue that's probably not going away anytime soon. Um, so perhaps we can reconvene again as events change on the ground and as uh, we can help Brussels sprouts listeners make sense of what's happening. But this was really an excellent start. Um, thanks both to you, Mike and Maxine for joining us. Um, and hopefully we'll we'll get to talk to you soon.